0: Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. At the start of October, I was invited to Asahikawa in Hokkaido to visit the Kanato Kawamura Ainu Museum. There, in front of the museum, is a replica of a chise, a traditional Ainu house, It stands about two meters tall with a steep roof and thick walls lined with the dried leaves of the sasa plant inside the chise hisai kawamura serves a thin herbal tea and then kneeling next to a gently crackling fire begins to sing an old ainu folk song you can hear it playing now It's a tale in which a girl from the world of the gods is so overjoyed to see the human world that she dances atop a mountain until a wind accidentally blows from her fingertips, knocking over the houses of the Ainu village below her. As punishment, her family sends her to a world beneath the humans, a world that is known for being hot and humid, honestly it sounds a bit like Honshu in the summer, where she remains for all eternity. It's an epic told to Ainu children to encourage them not to break things. Our singer Kawamura did not learn this tale as a child, however. Instead, she learnt it as an adult, memorising recordings of long-deceased Ainu elders singing folktales in the mid-20th century. The Ainu are Japan's indigenous population, and there aren't many left. Fewer still speak the Ainu language today. My guest on this episode of Deep Dive is Japan Times contributor Mara Bajan, who has been meeting and researching the Ainu to get a better understanding of their remaining culture, the difficulties they face, and to learn about the ongoing efforts to preserve their language, now classified by the United Nations as critically endangered. Hello, Mara Bhajan, Welcome to Deep Dive. Hi, Oscar. I wanted to get you on the podcast today because I really enjoyed your recent article for the Japan Times looking at the preservation of the Ainu language. But before we get into that, let's start with the basics. Who are the Ainu?
1: Now, the straightforward answer would be that the Ainu are the native inhabitants of Hokkaido, of the northern part of Honshu, of Sakhalin Island, and the Kuro Islands, which are part of Russia.
0: So we're looking at the area that makes up today's northern Japan.
1: So northern Japan, exactly. Exactly. And um, last year, the Japanese government actually officially recognized the Ainu as the indigenous people of Japan through a piece of legislation called the 2019 Ainu Policy Promotion Act. This is kind of your textbook answer, but actually saying who the Ainu are isn't at all so simple. One thing we can say is that Ainu people today are the descendants of the native inhabitants of the areas that I mentioned. And they descend from a rather complex history. Which is what? First of all, we don't actually know where the Ainu came from originally. So whether from Southeast Asia or Northeast Asia or a combination of the two. However, these people did settle in the Japanese archipelago and for quite a long time they remained somewhat isolated. Um, And what we speak about today as Ainu culture, as distinct from previous culture, actually developed between the 13th and the 19th century. So over time, contacts between the Ainu and their neighbours, including the Japanese, increased. And ultimately this resulted in the Japanese colonising the Ainu's native lands and integrating the Ainu into the Japanese state. So basically forcing them to become Japanese citizens.
0: And just to reiterate, the Ainu lands we're talking about here that were colonized were pretty much the entire island of Hokkaido. So a very large swath of what we consider to be the modern nation of Japan.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. A rather big area.
0: And are the Ainu genetically distinct from the Japanese?
1: Yes, Yes, they are. There is definitely a genetic difference between an Ainu person and a Japanese person, or there was. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, Ainu people and Japanese people have mixed to the extent that people may have Ainu blood in them, but it's only a percentage of their genetic information.
0: So what does it mean to be Ainu today?
1: So saying who the Ainu are today, especially, is really complicated because it opens up a lot of questions about what it actually means to be indigenous. One thing that complicates the picture is that not all people with Ainu ancestry actually identify as Ainu. So maybe they are not aware of their heritage or they simply choose not to associate openly with it. So this leads to the question of what does it mean to be Ainu in Japan today? Is it just that a person has Ainu blood or do they need to have some affinity for the culture and what if they don't identify as Ainu? So basically I've answered your question with a set of other open questions. (laughs) I'm sorry about that Oscar but it's just a very very complicated issue and Mm. a contested one still.
0: But much of the reason it's so complicated is due to what you just mentioned, that history of colonization of the Ainu by the Japanese, in the early Meiji period. So tell me a little bit more about that history. How did Japan come to take over Hokkaido and begin this process of integrating the Ainu population into Japan?
1: So absolutely, what you said is very important because this really is the history of the victors, you know. I mean, historical depictions of the Ainu, you have to consider, have been created and fashioned by Japanese first colonizers and now Japanese people in general, I mean Japanese society. So going back to the relationship between the Japanese and the Ainu, the Ainu remained isolated for a long time, but contact was initially based on trade. Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that by the 14th century, so around 600, 700 years ago, the Japanese had established trading posts in southwestern Hokkaido. So they already had a presence and this increased also during the Tokugawa shogunate, so what is known as the Edo period, mm. which is really one of the first real turning points that we're interested in, in looking at. So this happened at the turn of the 17th century, and basically uh, a clan known as the Matsumai clan was given exclusive trading rights with the Ainu. Relationships became increasingly hostile, and there were even some significant violent rebellions on the part of the Ainu that took place around Hokkaido. But it's really important to note that at this point, the Japanese were interested in the Ainu only for the goods they could mm. provide. It was a trading relationship. They weren't interested in governing them directly. So a really interesting fact, actually, is that Japanese traders weren't allowed to speak Japanese to Ainu people.
0: Oh, Early. Yeah. So they had to communicate in Ainu.
1: They used interpreters,
0: and this was this was a policy put in place by the Ainu, or the, no, by the Japanese.
1: By the Japanese, so by the Shogunate, by the Matsumai clan, who was managing relations with the Ainu, um, and basically they tried to keep their distance as much as possible.
0: So at this point in time, what would have been the Edo period, the Ainu people, on the island of Hokkaido, which actually wouldn't have been known as Hokkaido then, wasn't viewed as part of the nation of Japan.
1: No. It was not. What happened, though, was in 1868, 1869, so at the very dawn of the Meiji Restoration, Hokkaido is actually officially annexed by Japan and governed with a very explicit policy of assimilation. This means that the Ainu ultimately were forcibly incorporated into the Japanese state as Japanese citizens.
0: And what does that mean?
1: It means a lot of things. Uh, For example, their daily customs were banned. So men used to pierce their ears, women used to don tattoos, and these things were outlawed. The Ainu were deprived of their resources, of their lands and of their forests, which which the Meiji government took under its own control. And salmon, trout, fishing, as well as deer hunting and hunting of other animals was prohibited. So basically, the net effect is that the way of life that the Ainu had relied on for centuries, so based on hunting, gathering and fishing, was virtually outlawed. In its place, the Ainu were forced to adopt farming of rice, of beans, of potatoes, of livestock, And they were forced to enter segregated schools. So there were schools for the Ainu and there were schools for the Japanese. And so they were increasingly educated in Japanese rather than Ainu. As more Japanese people settled in Hokkaido, they began to mix with the Ainu population to the extent that the Ainu became minorities in their own lands. And over time, This sense of even existing in Ainu communities was lost, not everywhere, but almost everywhere. And the crazy thing is, is that this is, this history is really recent. So for example, there's this piece of legislation, there was this piece of legislation called the Hokkaido Former Aborigines Protection Act. And this piece of legislation was adopted at the turn of the 19th century, and it set the terms for the Ainu's forced socioeconomic integration into the Japanese state.
0: It sounds so sinister, the, the Protection act.
1: Well, it's you know this uh, paternalism, it really is colonialism in all its most distorted forms, right? And the crazy thing is is that this colonial language was still written into Japanese law until 1997, because this law was abolished just over 20 years ago. So even as recently as that, the Japanese state was still labeling the Ainu as former aborigines, therefore denying, continuing to deny the possibility of an Ainu identity even existing in Japan.
0: So after a century of forced integration under this, former Aborigines Protection Act, how many people still actually identify as Ainu today?
1: So it's very difficult to say how many Ainu people there are in Japan today. Basically, there are no national statistics on the Ainu population. So when I was researching the article together with my co-author Francesco Bassetti, we uh, basically asked the exact same question to the government body that manages Ainu relations. And this By the way, this body is called the Comprehensive Ainu Policy Office. This is its official name. And they were unable to give us a Japan-wide number. You know, this is the government. Japanese government is unable to say how many Ainu people there are in Japan. What they did point to is a survey which was carried out in Hokkaido in 2017. And according to this survey, there are just over 13,000 citizens that identify as Ainu. But ultimately, these figures are just massively problematic. And why is that? Well, first of all, they don't account for Ainu people who live outside of Hokkaido. And I know for a fact that there is a significant Ainu population even here in Tokyo, for example. And also, they just don't figure in all those people who don't identify as Ainu. And... To the credit, I guess, of the government officials we spoke to, they did acknowledge that this problem does exist.
0: A little bit earlier, you mentioned the 2019 legislation, which was the first time that the recognition of Ainu as Japan's indigenous people was enshrined in law. So the Ainu do have some protections today, right?
1: Yes. um, There are other important pieces of legislation. Um, One in 1997, which promoted Ainu culture, and one in 2008, which didn't recognize them officially, but it said it recommended that the Japanese government w- eventually recognize them. And this is what happened in 2019. I mean, the 2019 legislation is great on paper in the sense that it the fact of officially recognize the Ainu as indigenous opens up a whole other set of questions and possibility about their rights mm. as indigenous people. But really, it doesn't have that many provisions in terms of giving them, granting them those rights outside of cultural Mm. aspects. One very prominent example in this sense is the Upopoi Museum, uh, which is in Shiraoi in Hokkaido. And this museum was opened just this year in July And it is the only national museum dedicated to Ainu culture and history. It's this big, you know, I've been there, you know, it's a beautiful museum with this huge area in front of it, this park, this lake. But it's also a very controversial project. Um, In fact, we could dedicate a whole other episode of the podcast to talk about that. But many, you know, Ainu people, and not only Ainu people, argue that Sure, it's great, Japanese government, that you're promoting our culture through these vehicles like the Upopoe Museum. But ultimately, that doesn't correct for an underlying system Mm. where systemic discrimination is in place.
0: There's also the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was passed in 2007. How important is that to the discussion about the rights of the Ainu people in Japan?
1: So this declaration, which was adopted by UN member states and Japan voted in favor of it, right? It's a non-binding declaration. So it doesn't oblige states to do anything by law. But it's a very important tool for indigenous people around the world, including the Ainu, to advocate for their rights. Because within it, there is a whole set of provisions that are meant to increase opportunities for indigenous people to be members of society whilst also practicing their cultures. And so, you know, if we contrast this with the 2019 legislation here in Japan, the Japanese law just doesn't even talk about more substantial rights over, you know, natural resources Political participation, uh, economic inequality issues. Therefore, if the Japanese government wants to live up to the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, there's a very long way to go still.
0: We'll be back after this message from our sponsors this week we've got a new sponsor for deep dive and it's a really fun one it's a company called kokoro care packages who deliver curated care packages from japan filled with locally made premium quality artisanal japanese foods perfect as a christmas present or just if you're missing the taste of japan kokoro care packages offer both permanent collections and subscription options and next month's theme is oshogatsu japanese new year celebrations Joining me now is Kokoro's co founder, Lillian. Lillian, what's in next month's box?
1: So, Oscar, we are super excited to be sharing some of the New Year's specialties for this December and winter. Um, so, a couple of products that we'll be featuring include a Toshikoshi soba noodle. So, these are the noodles that are traditionally eaten on New Year's Eve. Um, the ones that we have are made by a local producer in Kanagawa who's been handcrafting his noodles since 1877, and they use entirely domestic ingredients. And we'll also be featuring some of the more traditional Osechi Dori dishes, which is sort of the Japanese New Year's meal that's eaten for the first three days of the year we're going to be including ozoni which is the new year's soup Uh, we have a kobumaki style kelp rolls um, and something that we're really excited about Um, i don't know if you know this but only 0.1 percent of the sesame seeds found in japan are actually grown domestically Um, and we were able to find a local farmer who produces some of the the rare domestic uh, sesame seeds which we'll be including as
0: well Delicious. If that sounds like something that's up your street as a deep dive listening, you can get a 10% discount off your first order of a subscription purchase by using the code deep dive. That's deep dive all in cats at KokoroCares.com. You have until November 30th to order your Oshogatsu care package, but we recommend ordering by November 15th to beat the holiday rush. Kokoro also offers Japanese cooking essentials, teas, snacks, sweets, and noodles all locally made here in Japan. For more information on that 10% discount, head to KokoroCares.com. A link is in the show notes. Sign up today for premium all natural care packages from Japan. Your recent article for the Japan Times focuses in particular on the preservation of the Ainu language. So, what do we know about the language that the Ainu speak?
1: Ainu is a super fascinating language. It's actually a linguistic enigma in the sense that we don't, still don't know where it comes from. It still hasn't been traced with certainty to any particular family of languages. And so in technical terms, this is known as a language isolate. There are traces of Ainu in Japanese words, actually. So, for example, the edible kelp kombu, the name for it is thought to come from the Ainu word komp. And there are many place names in Hokkaido that actually come from Ainu. So they're, they might be written in kanji, but they don't have any meaning in, in Japanese. For example, Sapporo is thought to come from the Ainu Satporopet, which means large dried-up river. And when we speak about Ainu language, this is actually a super broad term because it includes many, many different dialects. In the 1950s, researchers recorded 19 linguistic variations. Like that's that's a lot.
0: much of the Ainu language has been lost as fewer and fewer people speak it. So what's caused the decline of the language?
1: The really sad fact is that this linguistic diversity eroded at pace with colonization. During this period, Ainu people were forced to go to school and to learn Japanese. And the stigma surrounding their culture meant that the language was also used increasingly rarely in private. So you know, within family contexts. So it is thought that the last people to have been raised in an Ainu rather than Japanese speaking environment, it's thought that they passed away around the middle of the 20th century. So this whole picture has led linguists uh, to speak of Ainu as a language that is close to extinction. So technically this is called a critically endangered language which, according to UNESCO, means that the youngest speakers are grandparents and older, and they speak the language only partially and infrequently. However, the picture is actually much more complicated than that.
0: Well, so you said earlier that there are no official statistics on the number of Ainu that still exist, or people who identify as Ainu. So I imagine tracking the number of people who actually speak the language is even harder still. So do you have any sense of how many people can still speak the Ainu language or a dialect of it?
1: Just to get a sense of what the numbers that are out there are, in 2006, a poll, a survey carried out in Hokkaido found a little over 300 speakers out of 24,000 Ainu. I mean, these are dismal, dismal Mm. numbers, but they have to be taken with a really massive pinch of salt. In fact, I'll give you a practical example. So I spoke to an Ainu descendant uh, who is also an Ainu historian. And she said to me, listen, you know, periodically we have these stories about the last Ainu speaker dying. And she says, but I know people who speak Ainu. Her mother even teaches it. So what we have lost, very probably we have lost are the last native speakers. So people whose first language was Ainu Mm. and not Japanese. And some believe the last speaker to have been a man called Kayano Shigeru. He was a super important Ainu community leader, an activist, and he was actually the first ever Ainu member of the diet, of the Japanese diet. And he passed away in 2006.
0: So with this lack of native speakers and with the Ainu language being considered critically endangered, are there any serious efforts to preserve it at the moment?
1: So when we speak about preservation of Ainu language, we have to understand this movement in the context of a broader movement for Ainu culture and rights. And actually a really key figure, we can go back to Kayano, who I mentioned before, And through Kayano's lifetime activism and his role as a politician advocating for Ainu rights, you know, he was the spearhead of a movement that led to concrete measures to recognize and preserve Ainu culture and also Ainu language. So one key milestone was the 1997 Ainu Culture Promotion Act, which also includes provisions for language promotion. So this means that the Japanese government has invested to some extent in, for example, supporting Ainu language teaching. Kayano had already, well before 1997, had been recording Ainu folktales. And in 1983, he established the first Ainu language school, which is located in Nibutani, within a a wider town called Biratori. And uh, in the Ainu language school opened by Kayano in 1983, children and adults have been learning about Ainu language but in connection also Ainu culture, for decades. And actually the town of Biratori itself, it is one of the few places in Japan where children are actually learning some Ainu in school. They receive a few hours of education about the Ainu language every year. It's very little, but actually the town is trying to increase the number of time that is spent doing so. On the question of preservation, obviously a key aspect is teaching the language, especially in this case, right, where it's critically endangered. So if the last speakers do die, then it's lost.
0: That paints a pretty bleak picture of the, the state of the language to me, but I've got to imagine it's incredibly difficult to revive a language from the kind of edge of extinction. So what are the main challenges in trying to preserve it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the main difficulty... in in my view, is that there's just basically a lack of government support. You know, at the institutional level, there isn't an overarching system or vision for preserving the Ainu language. We we spoke about many different efforts, you know, people teaching it, organizations, but these are all super noble efforts, but they are somewhat disaggregated. So interestingly, Because of this lack of support from the government, many Ainu people, many Ainu organizations have actually looked outside of Japan for support. And on the question of language preservation, a very important relationship has developed between the Maori in New Zealand and the Ainu. So just a bit of background. uh, Around 30 years ago, the Maori language, which is called Tereo, was also on the brink of extinction. But... Through the efforts of a deemed rather successful language revitalization movement, the number of speakers has increased. So according to a 2013 uh, survey by the New Zealand government, 20% of ethnic Maori, so around 125,000 people, spoke the language. So Ainu educators have actually been engaging with their Maori counterparts in order to learn from them, mm. learn their methods, learn their strategies. In New Zealand, this exists in a wider context that Maori has been officially recognized as one of the nation's languages. So it's an official national language um, and it was recognized as such in 1987. So it's on the same level as English. and. Another thing is that the New Zealand government has actually set a target to reach 1 million Tereo speakers by 2040. So the government is really actively promoting the use of Tereo. I mean, can you imagine a similar situation in Japan? Like, of Ainu being on the same level as Japanese? Mm. You know, it's, it seems so far off.
0: Well, yeah, I... I barely even knew there was an Ainu language until about three weeks ago. <laughs> oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah.
1: It's just not on the top of everyone's mind, you know, many people's mind.
0: And do the Ainu groups you've spoken to believe that rescuing the language from the brink of extinction is possible without this kind of vision that we've seen from the New Zealand government, for example?
1: I guess it depends on who you speak to. It also depends on what their motivations are. People who are very passionate about, preserving the language and promoting it definitely do point to the fact that there's just a lack of support Mm. it's not completely absent I mean I don't I don't want to paint too strong a picture like the government does support some organizations that teach Ainu and has done so for a number of years but the overall political will for this kind of paradigm shift you know we could call it that way just isn't there and that definitely impacts the individual efforts of people preserving Ainu and In my view, actually, this is partially due to the fact that it's not quite clear what the end goal of such policy would be. You know, this kind of policy would need a vision.
0: I think relating from my own personal experience coming to Japan as someone who didn't speak any Japanese before I came here, there's a very large part of me that wishes everyone in Japan spoke English perfectly And in one way, the idea of having more languages in the world seems like something that would prevent communication between different people. It seems in many ways a very useful goal to have everyone speaking exactly the same language. So that's the very selfish view of and what would be the most convenient to me. But I appreciate there are many, many arguments about why different languages should exist. So why is it important to preserve a language such as the Ainu language?
1: So you say language would be useful, of course, because we could, well, one language would be useful so we could all communicate with each other. But we tend to take languages for granted because we think in that language, right? So that's how we see the world. Mm. And what we often don't see is that each language has a different way of interpreting the world. So, if we all spoke one language, we'd probably, you know, we would misrepresent the, just the sheer diversity that there is in the world. So, as as I mentioned, you know, language isn't just a way of communicating; it's an intrinsic part of who we are and our place in the world. So, for example, the Ainu historian that I that we interviewed, she said something really nice to us. She said that when she hears the Ainu greeting, so this is the standard Ainu greeting, it's irankarapte. Pronunciation. Hopefully, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so this Ainu greeting it the, literally means "let me touch your heart softly." So this is a rather beautiful. Beautiful, right? Mm. I mean, we just say hello. What does hello mean? <laughs> Nothing, right? Yeah. I, I, th- that I know <laughs> of. Um, so she says that she's when she hears Iran karapte she 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 feels emotional, and it's not just because it sounds nice. It does like flow very nicely mm. off the tongue, but. Also, it's because it has a whole set of, it has a philosophy behind it. And there's a huge body of research and, and you know, and, and activism about the importance of indigenous languages, especially because they conserve within themselves a huge amount of environmental knowledge. So knowledge about the natural world, about plants, about animals. And some of this knowledge isn't even yet known to science. And Ainu, too, expresses, you know, the fundamental premise of the Ainu worldview, which is based on a symbiotic and reciprocal and therefore sustainable relationship between the natural world, which is embodied in gods or Kamui, and the human world. So the world of the Ainu, because Ainu means human. So in this sense, preserving Ainu language isn't only in you know, isn't only important for the Ainu themselves, but it's important for everyone, for humanity as a whole. So language really is a vital element for Indigenous people, but everyone else as well, non-Indigenous people as well, to maintain a connection with their past and their culture, but also to find a place, you know, to flourish as multilingual and multicultural members of modern society.
0: I set up that question to be shot down and I think you've done a very good job at shooting it down.
1: (laughs) Happy to shoot you down, Oscar.
0: (laughs) Mara, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure having you on.
1: Thank you very much, Oscar.
0: That was Mara Budgeon. Her full article is on the Japan Times website now. It's a lovely read. And what do you think should be done to protect and preserve the Ainu language? Let us know by reaching out to us on Twitter at JapanDeepDive.com. Thanks also to our sponsors, Kokoro Care Packages. Please do visit their website to show support for this podcast. Info about the 10% discount and a link to their website is in the episode notes. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you as always for listening. And until next time, Potsukare-sama.